So I got to open up with a joke, right? That's that's the thing, right? That's the idea. All right. What do you call a First Nations doctor? What? Doctor. You're racist. <laughs> Did you come up with that one? No, actually, I think my little brother came up with that. Well, actually, I, I, think I, I, I heard it from my little brother, yeah, so I don't know where he got it from. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, I racistly said medicine, man. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, this is the Calgarian. I am Taylor Lambert, and this is the first episode of this podcast. I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited. And not only because this thing, this project that I've been imagining for over a year is finally here and real and playing in your ears, uh, but I'm also excited about my guest today. If you have spent any time in downtown Calgary this past year, there's a good chance you've noticed the teepees across from the courthouse, which have been there almost continuously since February 2018. That is the Mokinsis Healing Camp. Uh, Mokinsis is the Blackfoot word for Calgary. It means elbow. And for this episode, I talked to the guy behind the camp, Garrett Smith. Uh, I met Garrett because I used to live two blocks away from the camp, and I spent a fair bit of time there last year talking to him for a story in Avenue Magazine. Uh, and Garrett's got just an incredible personal story uh, from, a pr from a prison term for robbery to becoming a successful actor in Toronto to the primary organizer of this Mokinsis camp, uh, which has really become a focal point for the Indigenous community in Calgary. Uh, it's all pretty remarkable. Um, so here is my conversation with Garrett Smith. Yeah, so you are a public person in two different spheres. You're, you're an actor, mm -hmm. and you're publicly known for that, and you're also publicly known, more so now, probably for uh, being co-founder, Shit Disturber, we'll call it. That's your, that's your business card title, uh, for being one of the co-founders and sort of the engine, I guess, ongoing proprietor of uh, the Mokinsis camp downtown. And I was thinking about, I want to talk about both of those things, but I was thinking about how to get at them, get inside them. And I, I feel like there's no real way to describe them without talking about the general arc of your life and, and your earlier years, because everything is so intertwined in how you became, how you got into acting and how you came to set up a camp across from the Calgary courthouse. So true. Yeah. if, uh, if you don't mind, can we, can we start with the Garrett Smith origin story? Oh, wow. Uh, the most interesting part of my origin story is the origin itself. I think so is, uh, my biological parents were fairly young, uh, before I was born and they actually kept me a secret from my paternal grandparents, uh, who would eventually raise me. Uh, they kept me a secret from them until I was about six months old. And they were hanging around, I believe, or living with a few of my relatives. Um, they coaxed my mother and father to finally kind of reveal me to my grandparents. And when they finally did, uh, my grandfather, he basically didn't say a word when they first showed up. He was just furious and uh, he held me the entire time. And then when he finally came up to speak, he just told them that uh, we're keeping him. And so that was that was that, you know, and then when I was two years old, they officially adopted me. 
And then he actually passed away in 1989. And then my grandmother raised me alone uh, since then. So she's been uh, my my mother, my father, my my rock, my everything, you know, since uh, since I was about four years old, just before my fifth birthday, actually, is when he passed away. So, yeah, so I've been raised by a very strong woman throughout my entire life. And you grew up on the uh, the County Nation Reserve, right? Yeah, yeah, right by uh, Pitcher Creek there. But uh, even though I grew up on the reserve, uh, my mom made it kind of a key to uh, my grandmother, my grandma mom, made it a very huge uh, key to grow up uh in the white world, so to speak, you know. So I didn't go to school on the reserve. I went to school in town, you know, and then uh, that, that trend kind of progressed until I grew up. Do you have happy memories from that time? Was it, was it a happy childhood? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was one of the things I think I was really lucky with with my grandmother. And I guess from, from the stories, because I have a, a fairly romanticized image of my grandfather before he passed away. He was an alcoholic, you know. He, he was, uh, you know, the, the, there was a, a negative side to him that I don't, I don't remember at all. Uh, my only memories that I have of him are of him taking me fishing. So, you know, uh, just kind of looking back and realizing how strong my mom was in comparison to a lot of the things that I saw growing up in other households. You know, I, uh, she didn't drink. Um, she smoked uh, cigarettes for quite a while, but uh, she, she's, she, quit up, she quit close to about 15 years ago now. So I've never really experienced, you know, any... Um, I guess uh, domestic violence necessarily from from you know from uh, being raised with her you know. Uh, however, having said that, you know it was something that I did witness growing up. You know, with uh, some of my other relatives, you know, some of my other cousins who were my age. You know, um, spending weekends with them, whatnot. You know, it was uh, it's it, it's a harsh reality to accept. You know that uh, you know alcoholism and the drugs are a huge thing. You know that have been affecting our people now for quite some time. How do you think, looking back, how do you think that affects you as a kid? How does it affect your worldview when you're growing up with this stuff around you, even though it's not like directly affecting you? You're still very much like swimming in those waters, so to speak. How, do you, how does that impact a kid? It forced me to grow up really fast, and I can look back at it and I can smile and laugh, but geez, I just, it, I, got, I got a daughter who's 13 now. And to be perfectly honest, I was 12 the first time I, uh, I experimented and had my taste with marijuana. And uh, actually, my older cousins, who were 15 at the time, they ended up making me uh, go up to the dealer's house and, uh, and, and purchase you know, our, our, our joints for us that, that time. Right? You know, so I grew up really fast. I think there, there was a level of freedom and responsibility that I was given because of, I don't want to sound too facetious, but because because I was able to take care of myself, you know, um, I was I was I was trustworthy for for the most part, you know, especially at an early age, and so uh, <laughs> it's interesting being able to say that at being twelve years old and say, yeah, I was trustworthy, and I went to the dealer's house at twelve years old. But uh, you, <laughs> you know, can be I, trusted with that yeah, responsibility. Yeah, yeah, but it's something that I you know that never really became a problem with me growing up. Actually, you know, it was something I, I never really allowed to control my, you know, um, it didn't become a huge addiction for me growing up, you know, it didn't drop my grades and things like this, you know. Um, I became probably a steady smoker around 15 and been basically smoking since then, throughout my entire life since then, for the last 15, 18 years now, Sm actually. Uh, yeah. Marijuana. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I tried tobacco a few times here and there, but it just never really, yeah, that was just something. It, the, the logic of smoking and not getting high was always just like, okay, yeah. <laughs> so I just kind of threw that away. But 
It was, uh, you know, I, I think for the most part, my childhood was very tame in comparison to a lot of the other uh, experiment and, you know, experimenting that I saw a lot of my other uh, um, cousins kind of go through. You know, I never got into drinking. Um, but I've, I, I found out in an early age that, you know, marijuana was the safest thing for me and I never really done anything else. Tell me about um, what kinds of racism you encountered when you were a kid. I didn't recognize it at first, actually. Looking, going through it, I didn't realize what was happening to me. But when I look back at the experiences that I had in school uh, specifically, I mean, th there were a few instances where, you know, I was called a savage, you know, I was called, you know, told to go back to the res, those kind of things. But those things, you know, I, I had heard being told to other people so often, like those are just, you know, like flies on the wall, right? You know, you don't really pay attention. To those. those ones don't hurt at all or in any way, shape or form. It's the ones that are from people that you don't expect, like teachers. Looking back on it, um, not I, I guess uh, I guess the best way to put it was wasn't really given the benefit of the doubt in the classroom. You know, um, always kind of looked down upon. You know, wasn't um, when when asked for help, I could hear the difference in the way she would help. You know, the student next to me, the white student next to me, and the way that she would help me. You know, it was it, it, there was a supportive you know tone to the way that she would speak where there was almost a you know why don't you understand this kind of you know mentality when when, when i was you know when the, when the teachers would speak to us and i think that's probably the the most notable thing that i kind of can visualize from my childhood at least in school again i grew up very lucky with uh, growing up in pincher creek out there because it was very um brown and white <laughs> red and white so to speak you know uh, the huge native population out there so we're, there, there was a um, a unification that had already kind of developed out there for quite a while. You know, everyone kind of accepted everybody, even though it was, you know, kind of rednecky. <laughs> but um, I'd have to say I didn't really experience a whole lot of racism in the small towns. It was definitely more when I visited my family up here in Calgary, you know, when I came out to the big cities. And that's when we'd just be walking down the street and people would be yelling at you, you know, fucking savage, go back to the reserve, you know, what are you doing here, you know, we don't belong here, you know, get out of here. And it was always that. It was always that kind of, you know, along that rhetoric of, you know, go away, right, you know, you don't be here, you know, go back to the reserve, right, you know. How did you, how did you understand that when you were young, like? I, I didn't actually, you know, and it, it, at, at the time it was just like, oh, whatever, you know, I was like, you know, liar, liar, pants on fire kind of thing, right? You know, like, every, you know, everyone says those kind of things, you know, it, 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 it was just another insult. It never actually had the intellect, I guess, of, you know, race involved in it, you know, at, at least I didn't, you know, perceive it at that, at that point in time. But yeah, because everyone, I had a lot of white friends going up in the city or in the, in the small towns or, you know, everyone, you know, we went to the same, we went to the, each other's birthday parties and that kind of thing, you know, slept over each other's houses. So it was, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think we knew what we were saying, you know, knew the impact of the racial tendencies or the racial impact of what it was that were coming out of our mouth. Tell me about Green's Pop Shop. Oh, what do you want to know? <laughs> I can tell you that they certainly changed the security since I last visited there. Um, it's, so tell, tell people what, what Green's is. Uh, it was. Green's Pop Shop is a small convenience store. It was pretty much a community staple on the west side of Lethbridge. It had been there for years. And uh, I robbed it. Yeah. Decided to get a toy gun. And uh, it was right before Christmas, December 10th, 2006. 
And yeah, one of the worst uh, decisions of my life, but uh, I say but because I definitely learned a lot out of it, you know, about myself and where I stand in this society and where I want to be in it. Yeah. How did you come to make that decision? I had been working this job and uh, I had been cashing my checks there. I noticed one day when they cashed my check that they held the bag or they held the money in a small brown paper bag just underneath the register. And it was a joke for so for so long. Uh, it was in the summer months uh, when I had first seen it. And then it was Christmas when uh, I had uh, lost my job. Um, it's just a series of stupid choices and uh, ego that uh, forced me to be unemployed before Christmas. And we thought about robbing the store. It was a joke every time, you know, we were a little hard up for money. Like, oh, okay, yeah, we need gas money. Let's go rob greens. And then that one day just wasn't a joke anymore. And what did you do? I wrote a small, there, there's a little, I, I used the transit map actually to kind of map out my little escape route. And it's been about, it's, it's been long enough now. I'm pretty sure they don't mind me telling a little bit, uh, a little bit more about their involvement in the story there. But my sister, uh, my younger sister there, uh, she was my getaway driver. And uh, my partner at the time, um, uh, she was uh, actually, she had just gotten a job there actually. So oh, it, she was working at Greens. She was working there, yeah. But uh, we had, it, I had actually planned this before she had actually gained the employment there. She had like basically just started there. So long story short, she received a year's uh, probate, or she, she um, yeah, I'm oh, sorry. We got, I got sentenced to two, uh, two years. Um, my partner got sentenced to, I think, uh, I think about the same and uh, served eight months. Uh, we both served about eight, eight nine months in uh, penitentiary, yeah. Uh, how old were you? 22, yeah. And how old was your daughter? She, uh, we missed her second birthday. How do you look back on that now? I used to be sad, regretful, remorseful, but now it doesn't really affect me. I mean, what can I do? You know, I mean, I, I could sit here and pine and, you know, feel bad about it. But I think the biggest, like I said, it was something that I learned the most about who I am and where I stand in this society. It just, it just really taught me. First and foremost, I realized how many First Nations people are in are in prison. First Nations men, First Nations women, and how many of them, during my time in there, after getting to know them and learning about the details of their of, of their cases, how many of them don't deserve to be in there, and how many of them just have been harshly sentenced, you know? And you look at the you know current injustices, you know, that we've been protesting about uh, that started the camp, and we'll get into that later on, but uh, it just really opened my eyes to just how fucked up. Canada is and our relationship, you know, with uh, our speaking from a First Nations perspective, how our relationship is with this society and just how we've we've never been accepted and we still aren't to a large degree. And when I spent the my time in prison there, it just really kind of showed me that there's people in there that don't get the support because this system has been really designed to just you know suppress our people and i can get into all the policies and into all the the, the laws and stuff like that you know but uh, we, we, we've heard it you know when you, you can go online you see all the protests and stuff but um it was for me an eye an eye-opening 
experience to the responsibility that I have with the knowledge that I carry and with the support that I've been given growing up. I realized being in prison that I had failed my grandmother, I had failed my dad, you know, and that I had failed my family. And that is still the thing where I, <clears throat> you know, I kind of, you know, puts a little bit of a lump in my throat because that's, I think that that was the big realization is that, you know, I had got taken away from my daughter, missed her second birthday. And it was just the, the impact of how useless I was on the inside to my family and seeing all these other men on the inside who are useless to their own families and knowing that these families on the outside need these men that are there, need these men to be able to be there, you know, to be able to provide, to be able to work. But the system, you know, it just works against us, you know. And we also need to be responsible for our own anger as well, too, right? you know, as men. And I think that was one of the big eye-opening things in there as well, too, is a lot of the guys that I spoke to in there were very accountable for their actions and very accountable for their anger and just wanted to get out and be part of their family again, you know. And so that was a big a big eye-opening thing to just have that experience and realize that I screwed up so bad and there are so many other men like me who have screwed up so bad but I carry a certain responsibility because I was given the gift of someone like my mom you know my grandmother who raised me you know and through her I have this connection to elders to the culture to traditions you know that I never really embraced before you know and as I move forward, as I grow, I'm real. I, I be, I'm realizing, you know, that that's, that's, that's where the healing lies for our people and for our men specifically, and for myself, you know. And I just want to find a way to share that, I guess. Yeah. So back to the timeline, how do you go from robbing a convenience store and going to prison to becoming an actor in Toronto? <laughs> draw, draw, draw that line. Take us on that journey. Oh, it's very simple. I wanted to of course you know you, you get out of prison you want to do better right you know you want to find a job go back to school uh, uh attempted to go back to school went to university did this one year first nations transition program to get into university and then studied kinesiology and anthropology for a year because i wanted to be a sports trainer my goal was I wanted to travel with uh, some sports team and just be able to, you know, travel around and just be able to see the world with them, you know, while being a bit of a cheerleader and getting to see some games, right, you know. I was like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be a cool life, you know, while at the same time being fit, you know. But fuck university. <laughs> <laughs> fuck that lifestyle and fuck that environment. Just, it was draining and it, it was just so sad to see everybody around exam time you know, just become miserable, just absolutely miserable. And I thought I was going to tough it out. But thankfully, uh, what actually happened was my cousin, uh, who was a dancer, is a dancer and a choreographer, uh, actually signed me up for this theater, summer intensive theater program uh, without my knowledge. He said, hey, I'm signing you up for this program. And I was like, OK, sure. Lo and behold, I ended up fucking loving it. And it was in June and through the month of August, I uh, spent my time trying to apply and uh, get into the program out in Toronto. And uh, first I got accepted by my band, then my band said no. And then the school actually came back with an offer, with a scholarship offer to 
pay for a flight out there, help me find accommodations and to give me a living allowance and to pay the tuition. And I was like, fuck, I cannot turn that down. So yeah, took off to Toronto and uh, lived out there for about uh, just under 10 years actually. Yeah. What was that like? Like to, to that, that became your dream. You didn't know it was your dream until it, uh, it presented itself to you. But then it's like all your, all your dreams come true in a, in a way. Like you're, you're living this fantastic life. You've gone from robbing a convenience store and going to prison and serving time to not only like trying to be a better man and, and sort of turning your life around and finding direction, but then like getting sponsorship to go study in Toronto and live an artistic life. I mean, holy shit. Yeah, it was unexpected, of course. And the, of course, the, the biggest the biggest reason why I went was also the biggest reason why I didn't want to go was my daughter. But looking at the path that my life had taken while sticking around here, it just it was it was so obvious that I needed, I needed to get away. And I I know just you know, like with just in the bottom of my heart, you know, I know that if I had stayed, I'd be back in jail again, you know. Uh, or I'd be into some other worse kind of drugs or I'd be an alcoholic if I had stayed and I hadn't taken that opportunity to go to Toronto um, I you know I might might even be dead you know because I my anger is something that still hasn't gone away it's something that I understood to just I, I, I needed the opportunity and not a lot of us get that opportunity and not a lot of us even get to get a chance, you know, to try anything new, you know, especially to get away. And <clears throat> I think that's one of the best things that really saved my life was getting away, was being able to see another side of the world away from all of the racism and away from all the lateral violence that we know I was experiencing here. But, um, yeah, it's it, it's 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 hard to. Uh, kind of decipher everything that's kind of brought me up to this, this this point from having gone to prison to being an actor now or to to you know having well, to having been an actor to kind of dropping that to you know going into the camp and doing all this stuff but knowing that there's a lack of opportunities here for our people and especially on reserve and being able to get away and being able to see the world I think is just absolutely beneficial for everybody you need to be able to experience culture outside of your own bubble. You know, you need to be able to see how the other side lives. You know, you need to be able to experience other people other than, you know, the people that you live around because that's how you get racist, right? You know, <laughs> that's how you get ignorant. You know, if you just live in your own bubble and you don't experience the world, you know, it's, it, it, just, it, it just creates more indifference, you know. So I think if there's anything I can, you know, encourage to any of the youth listening to, you know, any of the words that I have to say is, you know, take every opportunity you have to get out, to just get away and just for <laughs> to get uh, to get a little romantical, you know, to go on your vision quest, right? You know, go out there because right? that's that's really what it is, right? You know, and that's really what the impact, the, the meaning of that vision quest was, you know was to go out there and basically find yourself, you know, to find out who your spirit is, to find out what it is you want to do, what it is you want to be, right, you know. And traditionally that was in the form of, you know, go out to the nature and go hunt, you know, go out there, go out there and just find, you know, whatever, right, you know, go explore and then come back and then tell us what you found about yourself, you know, and then we'll support that, you know. And 
nowadays it's okay you go out there go get a degree you know go out there go travel right you know and then come back and tell us how you want to help out right you know and that's you know i think that's that that's something that we don't we aren't allowed to do as first nations because you know um people think we get all these handouts but in, in reality we don't we got we, we get these handouts to keep us on the reserve you know which is basically like a can of spam and some flour here you go here's enough to feed yourself mm-hmm. now stay put what was it about acting specifically that uh, appealed to you? Being able to escape my own reality um, without having to use drugs and alcohol. <laughs> and also the people, actually, too. That was the really huge factor. My uh, first drama teacher, her name was Lynette Smith, and uh, she was teaching out of East Glen in Edmonton. And she really just kind of made theater fun. And just yeah, she just kind of opened up that world to me. And that was my first, uh, my first time on stage was in her performing arts class. It just kind of reaffirmed certain fears that I didn't even know that I had about just putting myself out there, right? You know, and just 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 being, you know, um, a lot of First Nations, you know, we we're, we're shy, you know, when when we when we talk publicly and interactly, you know, it, there's there's a shyness that's kind of in there, you know, and it's it's almost a shame. That's kind of been built in, beaten in, so to speak, you know, that I can see. And theater really kind of helped just kind of release release that, you know, and just kind of help me, you know, be proud of who I am in a certain aspect. So Lynette really, you know, kind of helped uh, um, propel that love for theater. And it was just the ability also to be able to tell my own story and being able to narrate my own experience and also being able to interpret other characters from, you know, from a First Nations experience and then, you know, portray them in, in, in that way, you know. It's, we don't see ourselves in Hollywood, you know. We don't see ourselves in the books, you know. We don't see ourselves in the magazines. And if we ever do, it's, you know, romanticized, miniaturized, you know, it, you know artif- artifacts, you know. We're looked at as museum pieces, you know. We're not looked at as current, relevant, you know, you know parts of society. And being able to just take all of that and push it aside and actually be a part of it and say yeah this is who i am this is you know uh this is who we are right you know the characters that we are and being on stage with other native people it was it was uh, almost unreal because like i said you know you don't see it you know the only time you ever see it in calgary is when it's at the calgary stampede right you know when everyone's paid on rams to put on their regalia and look native you know um we're never actually allowed we're never actually encouraged to just be and what i mean by that is you don't actually see hollywood movies where you just have native people the only time you see native people is when there were you know the old old time warriors you know being killed by the cowboys and that kind of thing you know it's always that story you know and it's amazing to be able to go on stage and to be able to be seen, to be listened to. It's um, acting, I think, saved my life in a large degree because it allowed me to step outside of myself and look at the script of my life and determine what kind of character I am and what kind of character I want to be down the road, right? Um, Okay, so you're in Toronto for a decade or so acting living your dream 
uh and then you come back to alberta and uh, i think it's making treaty seven that brings you back is that right or yes yes okay tell tell me about that tell, tell folks first of all who may not know what what, what making treaty seven was well, that's just the best show ever. <laughs> uh, it was created originally. Uh, it was. It's the brainchild of uh, the late uh, Michael Green, uh, who passed away alongside Narcissus Blood. Um, I uh, am a horrible person for forgetting the other two ladies' names. I'm sorry, I'd never met them. They weren't from this area. But uh, tragically, there were four people who passed away in a car accident. Um, and the two gentlemen, uh, Narcissus and Michael, were instrumental in creating Making Treaty 7. And they were very prominent figures in, in Calgary yeah, Theatre yeah. and, M and Michael, arts. And yeah, M Michael Green was part of One Yellow Rabbit, and um, uh, Narcissus Blood was uh, just a huge, uh, uh, just, just a large um, uh, figure in the First Nations community. And they created uh alongside several other artists uh, a theater show explaining the reasons behind the blackfoot uh the first nation signing of the treaty uh in this territory treaty number seven and which is the first theatrical story or the first theatrical play about a historical fact you know that's told from first nations experience and it's become a it, it, it has an amazingly huge positive effect on the community so far and just the, the bridge building that it's that it's been able to give and so they created the the large show for adults and then michael partnered with uh, before his passing uh he had the foresight to partner with quest theater and create a children's version of the show uh and that's actually what brought me back uh to uh here in Calgary was I got hired to do the Quest Theater and Making Treaty 7 collaboration called We Are All Treaty People. That was for three months last year and all of a sudden the Making Treaty 7 uh, company was without an artistic director and uh, long story short there uh, after some uh, deliberations with our cast I got elected to step up as the interim artistic director so my uh, little contract of coming out here to act turned into a job <laughs> and uh, lo and behold I ended up uh, sticking around uh, now to summarize I actually didn't I, I'm not an artistic director I you know I, I was you know it, it's not a position I trained nor do I necessarily have uh, you know the accolades for so it was uh, it, it was more uh, a transitional uh, you know position for me to bring in someone else or for me to pave the way for someone else to come in because there was uh, some internal issues that were being resolved that needed an, an indigenous voice and uh, through the cast support you know I was able to give that voice so really it's 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 almost like it's a series of uh chance happenings um not chance exactly but you know you get hired to do the show that's what brings you back to alberta and then you end up sticking around longer because you end up becoming the ad temporarily and that's what that's how you happen to be still in calgary uh when 2018 comes around mm -hmm. and now we're getting back to the present time and the camp um tell me about what happened in february 2018 I was fed up with my roommates. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, there was the injustices that between the cases that uh, Tina Fontaine and the Colton Bushi trials had just happened, and uh, there were multiple cases before then. 
that had already kind of stirred the, the blood in First Nations communities. So, but at that point in time, uh, that really kind of put people's you know blood to boil, and uh, myself included. Uh, after the Tina Fontaine trial, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Darla Contua, she initiated the first Soaring Eagles camp uh, outside the Winnipeg Legislature building. And I believe she set up the day of the Cormier trial, after the day he was acquitted. <clears throat> that was hugely inspirational to me, watching what she had done. And I just felt compelled to do something out here. So I put up a Facebook uh, call out to anybody who would want to do something along the same lines. And actually got uh, immediately got support from several uh, people here in, in, in the community. It was just overwhelmed that they had these these people just w w willing and ready to, to step up and do something. So, so three days after Darla set up, myself, Danny Black, and uh, Gitz Deranje, we set up uh, the Soaring Eagles uh, Treaty Seven Calgary version of uh, the camp, and uh, that went on for about a week. And Darla took down her camp, and we took down our camp with solidarity with her. And in the week that we were down, I was just inundated with messages from the community about where'd you go, why'd you leave, we want you back, which really shocked me. And what really shocked me the most was a lot of the messages that I received were from non-native people. And so to summarize, uh, we decided to re-raise the camp uh, with, uh, with specific initiatives separate from protesting we've we, we've done the protest over and over and over again we know that they they're good for gathering attention but we wanted to do something tangible that will have a, a long-lasting continuing effect to provide change here in the city so we thought up uh, the idea of establishing a healing camp uh, under first nations model and so we raised the mohkinsis healing camp uh, first using a trapper's tent and then eventually getting uh, two teepees to summarize, we're now looking at uh, working with the city, with several organizations, at implementing uh, several healing camps here in the city, and uh, just kind of looking at how we can help out uh, with uh, providing some uh, reconciliation and also just some support for uh, the homeless community here and uh, some of the First Nations issues that uh, you know we're experiencing and the, the lack of services and support that uh, that community has here in Calgary. That's a that's a big summary. I think we're gonna we're gonna try and unpack some of that. Because oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> from February until now, this is recording this in December, and it, a lot has happened with this camp. Oh yes. Um, so when you first set it up, the three of you, um, it was not. I think that by the time anybody actually in the city started paying attention to it, the teepees had already arrived and mm -hmm. set, been set up. Um, but you originally just started with a trapper's tent, which is basically just like it's just a regular very plain like a rectangle with strings like it's it's just a, a very basic tent yeah yep um and you did not ask anybody's permission of course because this is a protest <laughs> um who owns that land that you're on directly so just to, so people can visualize this if you're familiar with calgary the courthouse the court center is on fifth street downtown and uh, there's a park directly across from it that's uh, between sixth avenue and the train station that spans the entire block and you're you set up the camp uh, basically on the northwest corner of that, uh, directly opposite the uh, the courthouse. So mm -hmm. who, who owns that land? We do, as Blackfoot. <laughs> this is traditional Blackfoot territory, and that's actually what allows us to be on the property legally. Uh, however, uh, there is a title on the land that uh, says it belongs to the Ministry of Infrastructure. 
which is a provincial entity, uh, which actually sent us a letter of support uh, early on in our occupancy, stating that they understand the need for uh, open dialogue and uh, protests and uh, actions like this to take place. Uh, given the injustices that have been occurring in uh, in, in Canada over the recent uh, years or recent months, and they actually support our right to uh, freedom of expression and speech, and have issued no formal request to have us removed from the property. So uh, that was, I believe, February twenty eighth is when we actually got that uh, that email from them, and since then there had been absolutely no pressure at all from any municipal authoritative uh, entity to uh, have us removed. I think it's really important to note this because you got that before you sort of relaunched the camp and rebranded it not as a protest camp. You got that when you were still very much a protest camp, sort of an extension of the Soaring Eagles camp. Yes. Yep. And can you just sort of contrast that treatment by the provincial government that you received to the other camps? Mm-hmm. in Regina and Winnipeg and Toronto and other other places that, that set up protest camps in the wake of the, the Colton Bushy and Tina Fontaine cases. Yeah, uh, Raquel Dubois had contacted me from Regina uh, after she had saw our camp and uh, Darla's camp going up and she said that they wanted to do the same thing and we just told them just do it, do it your way and uh, of course they did and they, they, they you saw what they did. They just, they, oh God, I, I'm... I'm jealous in a lot of ways, you know, because they had a, it was so beautiful and how many people they had there. But uh, we don't have the space at all to be able to do that down there at our, at our camp. So it was really beautiful to watch them. But the seeing how the province and how the community treated them, it was not surprising, to be perfectly honest. From a First Nations perspective, it's like, OK, that's we, we, we saw that coming. We knew that was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, what was very surprising was the level of support that they got from the media actually they weren't uh, from my perspective from what i saw the media portrayed them in a fairly positive light um they didn't you know uh i i didn't see a whole lot of uh negative press you know they were obviously advertised as a protest camp and whatnot but i believe a lot of the negativity that i saw was from what the they were experiencing you know the 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 Nazi fellow who showed up there with a knife and put up his little tent there, you know, and then uh, the firecracker, the guys uh, shooting fireworks at them and whatnot. We didn't receive any of that at the camp. Uh, We didn't receive any kind of threats. Um, There wasn't any um, vindictive vandalism. Um, There were a few, uh, you know, holes, rips, you know, here and there in in the canvas and whatnot, but nothing uh, malicious. Uh, and I was actually really impressed with Calgary and uh, just the area here. But then to see the contrast of what was going on in Regina, it was it felt really helpless because I wanted to support in some way, shape, or form. But again, you know, we have we, we, we just got to take care of our own territories. And I think their journey is kind of you know very specific to that territory, you know, and it also speaks to the level of progress that that they've made in that area in terms of their reconciliation efforts. They definitely have a long way to go. So I'm, it, it's made me very grateful for Calgary, you know, and the experiences that I've that I have here, you know, and being someone who you know admittedly looked at things from a very negative you know viewpoint, you know, I'm I'm, I'm beginning to kind of you know shift that around and say, okay, you know what, there is hope. You know, there is, you know, a chance for some positive dialogue to be able to happen here in Calgary. Maybe Calgary is actually ready, you know, to move forward and actually embrace First Nations culture beyond just the Calgary stampede. 
I'm trying to find the specific wording to say this so it comes out correctly for my own First Nations people here. We want to be able to move forward so they can come back to our table. We don't have a seat at their table. They never did, and we never will. And we don't want a seat at their table. That's the thing, actually. You know, we don't want a seat at these government tables. But fuck the AFN. <laughs> fuck the Assembly of First Nations. Fuck Perry Bellegarde and all that. What they stand for, right? You know, we're looking at just reestablishing ourselves as you know, in independent, sovereign nations. And that sounds scary to a lot of people, but really, we just want to be able to live our own lives the way that we always have been. And in doing so, we can show you all how to live, you know, without sounding too, you know, we can show you all. We can show and assist and, you know, support in a better way of living with this land because we've been here, we've done it before. The camp is there to build these understandings, to build these reconciliation efforts, you know, and the fact that Regina, you know, took down that camp, they missed out on a huge opportunity to be, be able to learn, to be able to heal. Maybe talk a little bit about like the actual day to day logistics of the camp as it was running like this summer and stuff like uh, you had people staying there. You were staying there sometimes, too, during the day, like on a on a, on a weekday, like it's downtown Calgary. Like it's mm-hmm. just there's there's people everywhere. It's, it's full of people. Um, how, did, how did the camp operate and what were you trying to achieve with it being there in that location? I was clueless <laughs> at first, knowing exactly what it was that we wanted to do, right? You know, we wanted to take on the world. We wanted to affect change. We didn't have any real specific, tangible, you know, goals. Like, okay, we want, we want to bring awareness. We want to help reconcile. We want to be present. <laughs> and as, as, as those things came to be really easy, actually, you know, with the support of the infrastructure, you know, not removing us, that allowed us the freedom to kind of flex our ideas. So as we progressed, uh, it started off with me staying at the camp and I was there basically 24 seven. And then I would have a few people come by and they would uh, spend the night and I would come back. But I was basically there basically 24 seven for about the first two months, which uh, definitely became very draining uh, for the first, uh, for a while. But then I got a lot of volunteers who uh, started to help me out and then we started doing shift work where I had guys that were staying down there at night. And uh, I'd come down there during the day. And it, it turned into a bit of a day job for me for about uh, in, in the middle um, in, the, in the middle months there where I was able to kind of leave in there in the evening and leave it at night. I'd come back at the end of the night to check on it, make sure there was people there, uh, come back in the day, in the morning, and then be there during the day. So it became a day job for me um, for, for a little while there. And... The people that I actually had helping me out uh, were actually from the street, uh, were, were homeless actually. And they were, uh, had two gentlemen that were doing a really good job when we had the tent up there. And I had one of them that was uh, basically living down there. He had nowhere else to go and uh, he was sober. And uh, he actually ended up getting housing and uh, getting a job, which was great for him. But that kind of left me without you know any solid help. Since uh, since he left, it was a struggle trying to find people that were as dependable to be there at night. And for the last few months, uh, it was just a huge struggle getting uh, night volunteers. And uh, the people that I would trusted down there, uh, they, they turned out to be you know not uh, not so good and would leave the, leave the place pretty messy. I'd come back in the mornings and there'd be trash all over the place. I'd find beer bottles in the uh, you know um, in, in the teepees and uh, you know. 
And it got to the point in the last uh, month and a half there where, you know, there was a lot of people just trying to drink, drink and use it as a party space at night. And so I'd be going down there every night telling guys, come on, don't, don't risk them, come on, respect the space, respect the space. And fast forward to where we are now, we uh, took down the camp and uh, we're reorganizing. I've got uh, um, a new group of volunteers. Uh, I've got the same volunteers and I've added some new, new ones as well. And so we're reorganizing now. And uh, if everything goes well, uh, right now, we're hoping to uh, re-raise again uh, right, right just before Christmas. And added to that, I've been uh, talking with several organizations here in the city, uh, different homeless organizations. Uh, had a meeting with the city uh, city planners uh, last week uh, about uh, how to indigenize the, the city more and provide spaces like this, like what, the work that we're doing. So there's actually a lot of support that's pouring in from places that I'm very surprised, actually. And I'm being invited to meetings to sit at tables that I never thought I'd be able to. And uh, I just want to be able to jump on that bandwagon and support that as well, too. And look how the camp can uh, provide some some First Nations presence and support permanently. And so we have a First Nations place where we're present and you can be seen where we aren't just relegated to some festival like the Calgary Stampede, right? Yeah, where you do see us year round. When you relaunched the Mokensis camp, what, uh, what role do you want it to play in, in the city and in, as a place of, I guess, reconciliation, if we're going to use that word? I want it to be a foundation for those efforts. There's a one-sided dialogue. And what I mean by that is all the conversations, they're not happening in for lack of a better term, they're not happening in our homes as First Nations. We have to go to the government buildings to talk about reconciliation. We have to go to the House of Commons, whatever, to talk about reconciliation. We have to go to the legislature building to talk about reconciliation. We have to go to all these settler, you know, boxes to talk about reconciliation, right? You know, one of the benefits of the teepee is there's no doors, there's no walls in there, there's nowhere you can run away. In the teepee, it's a circular place where everything is connected and you're facing everybody. There is, you, you don't have your back. When, when, when everybody's in the teepee and you're all sitting down, you're all facing each other. In a, you're all in the circle. You're facing each other. And if ever there's a conflict, no one can go into another room and slam the door and isolate themselves. You know, you have to either stay and deal with it or if you do need to leave, you go outside. <laughs> And you're immediately with nature and you're outside, you're breathing fresh air, you got your feet on the land, right? You know, you got your feet reconnected, right? You know, and so you're, and just that simple, that simple fact, you know. And one of the things that we're going to have to understand is that we're different. We are absolutely different. And there's nothing that is going to make us the same. Nothing at all. No God, no Bible, no scripture, no ceremony. Nothing is going to make us the same. We're going to be different. But it doesn't mean that we can't live on this land together. And still be different, you know, mm -hmm. and still accept each other in, in, in that way forward. Do you know? Do you so, know the quote? Uh, they can corner you in a house, but they can't corner you in a teepee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I forget yeah. who said that, but I yeah, love, yeah, I love actually, that quote. yeah, yeah. Thank you for reminding me for that. Yeah, that's actually exactly what kind of inspired, yeah. you know, and kind of you know really kind of reinforced that thought. You know, was that you, there's you have to deal with your issues when you're in the teepee, when you're in the circle, you know, when you're in the square box and things like that you're covered, you're confined, you're in a cage. In the teepee, there's still the opening at the top and you're still able to breathe, you know. And just that simple thing is healing and it's healthy and we don't do that, you know, 
in, in, in modern society anymore. We sit in boxes, we sit in rooms, and we lie on couches, and we talk to somebody's and strangers, and we tell them our problems. But we don't actually sit down as a community and listen to each other. And we don't actually sit down and say, how can we all help? You know. How would you describe your uh, relationship with traditional Blackfoot culture? Fractured. Uh, disconnected. Um, I'm, I'm blunt with myself. A, a lot of my knowledge is academic and, and kind of settler-based, so to speak, you know, observational. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm slowly changing as I, you know, I kind of, especially having moved back from Toronto, immersing myself more in the culture. I don't speak my own language. That's one of the key things that I really want to, you know, um, fix. <laughs> you know? Did you did your grandmother speak Blackfoot? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, did you hear it growing up a lot? I did, yeah. And that's the thing. I, I can... I can understand it, and it's actually really not hard to understand because, well, Blackfoot. One of the things they say: if you want to shut up a Blackfoot person, tie their hands behind their back. You know, because <laughs> everything is done with their hand. Everything is explained with their hands, right? And just kind of following the hand gestures, you can kind of tell, you know, who's talking, and you can tell when a story is getting dirty. You know, and things kind of like that. You know, so I, I, I'm for the I'm for the record, a, Garrett has been talking wildly with his hands this entire interview. Yes, yes, I had a Timmy's in my hand right now and I'm hoping not to spill all over <laughs> myself. You mentioned that like the city's been really supportive and the province uh, supported you. Um, what about like uh, just ordinary people on the street? Because it's downtown Calgary. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of business people there. And you're on across Sixth Avenue from you is is a bar. And during Stampede, uh, the empty lot next to it became this massive party tent. It was basically a club. Yeah. Uh, and Huge beer gardens. Yeah. Yeah. And this is directly across the street from Mokinsa's healing camp. These two teepees. Uh, I'm just curious about how the immediate surroundings, your immediate neighbors have, have treated you during these months. I think the fact that there was a lack of vandalism speaks for itself. <laughs> you know, uh, when the, when we had the beer gardens there across from us, uh, I think the worst thing that happened to us was one guy came over and he was just drunk. And I, I don't know if it was a malicious intent for him to come and urinate on the teepee, but that's what he tried to do. And uh, one of the guys caught him and said, hey, bro, bro, you got to go over there. He's like, oh, sorry, sorry. And he you know, walked over and ended up peeing on the... The, the courthouse. It's very generous of you but to give him the uh, benefit of the doubt that maybe he was just so drunk he didn't realize he was urinating on a teepee. Hey, I'm not going to call a racist a racist, <laughs> even though they're racist. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was interesting, actually. And we actually had a lot of concerns from uh, the internal community of the camp, you know, our, our own members that were coming there saying, we should take on the camp because we, you know, we're worried about this going to happen. We're worried about people coming here to do this. But none of that, none of that happened, actually. It was pretty amazing that we were left alone. And that that's, um, <clears throat> to, to specify, that's the level of support that we've been receiving from the city, is that they left us alone. And like, we haven't, we, they, have, they haven't been sending us gift baskets or like funding and like, or giving us coffee or things like that, you know. But uh, I, I think the fact that they just kind of left us alone and allowed us to be, you know, that, 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 that in itself is, is a supportive act. And to kind of touch on what it is that, we as First Nations, you know, are asking for on a societal basis. That's really it. It's just the freedom to be ourselves and practice our own, you know, culture our, and, and our own traditional laws, which are, you know, a protection of this land. That's really all it is. It's, you, draw an, you draw an important distinction, though, like that the, the city has, you know, left you alone. Mm -hmm. uh, so you haven't had and you haven't had a lot of vandalism. So like there hasn't been 
negative interactions. But the positive side is important too. Like mm -hmm. just to be left alone is fine from the authorities. But and you've I know that you know you've had a lot of supporters. You've had uh, people mm -hmm. come out and, and help you. But in terms of like people walking by, like do you get p curious people coming over and just like asking questions? Because I know that 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 was part of the framework of the camp at one point was that you wanted it to be a space for engagement where people could come. And I think you you, you said in some media stories like come and ask your stupid questions. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, it, it definitely served that purpose as well too. I think what was interesting was to see how people, to see the people who were brave enough to actually come over and 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 speak. And, and I say brave because it's, it, it, I I do realize that it you know given the circumstances that we have in Canada right now that it, there is a level of reticence for a non-native to come up to a native guy and being like, hey. Why are you here? <laughs> Which I, I think was a, a, is a very legitimate question for people to come out. Hey, well, you know, what are you doing here? And it was a very welcome question. And for, more often than not, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time when I would get a question from someone coming over there, uh, irregardless of whether or not they came over with a bit of a chip on their shoulder, right? You know, kind of, you know, why are you here? You know, as opposed to, hey, why are you here? You know, um, they all kind of walked away with an understanding of what it was that we were looking to achieve. And I would always tell them, is like, well, we were originally set up as a protest camp, right? You know, but we want to provide some healing uh, to our people here. And uh, the, the simplest way that I was able to uh, convey that after about two months, three months, I'm giving them this long spiel about, you know, well, this is why First Nations are here. This is what we're doing. It, uh, I was able to summarize it with the simple fact that there are 400 churches here in Calgary, multiple synagogues, mosques, and temples, but really nothing for our own people to practice our own spirituality and our own culture and be who we are. You know, we, we're, we're oppressed and suppressed to the reservations, and there's no resources in the reservations for us to be able to build, you know, for us to be able to interact and for us to be able to connect and for us to be able to engage with those of us that are urban natives, that live in the cities, right, you know. The simple juxtaposition that we face as First Nations is you live on the reserves, you have access to the culture, the ceremonies and the healing and all that, but you don't have the jobs, the opportunities or the recreational facilities, you know, or the health benefits of the grocery stores, you know, it's a food desert, you know, and it's the exact opposite when you come out here into the city, you know, you have access to all of those, but you don't have any access to who you are as a, as a, as a First Nations person. So that's really the gap that we were looking to fill. And when I began to explain to the people like that, they were like, oh, wow. Okay, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. And then, really? It's like, you guys, there, there, there's nothing for First Nations? Like, yeah, there isn't. There really is nothing that the city infrastructure supports for First Nations to be able to practice their own spirituality. So the freedom and the right to be able to just have access to who we are as spiritual people, that's really what we're looking for. And once we get access to that, you look at all the different kind of types of community engagements that churches are able to have because they have the space. If we as First Nations had something like that here in the city, we'd be able to take care of our own issues. We'd be able to take care of some of our own epidemics, you know, some of our own internal struggles that we're facing with the drug and alcohol crisis, you know, instead of having to, you know, feed into this stigma that people believe that we're dependent on society and looking for handouts, right? I remember you you told me once um, you framed it as sort of like uh, there's there's 
cultural spaces for everybody uh, in in Canada and Canadian cities. You have lots of Chinatowns, Little Italy, Little Portugal, yep. like all all these spaces. But there's no. You, you said that you wanted to see like a like a Chinatown for Treaty Seven Nations, or maybe like a Blackfoot one and a Tsitsina oh. one and a Stony Dakota one, like neighborhoods where you could walk and like literally feel the culture around you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wonder. I know that. You, okay, so you're you're planning on re-raising soon. We're recording this in December, and and we'll give an update to this episode for the camp before we release it. But talk about the future of Mokinsis. Our our next step will be putting the TP back up in front of the courthouse and utilizing that as a, a starting point, a base. We're also looking at uh, continuing uh, our work uh, with the homeless organizations, uh, specifically to create a night patrol uh, very similar to what Winnipeg's uh, Bear Clan Patrol is doing. And we want to just also to create some jobs and security for our own people here that way as well, too. That's really just kind of where we want to start small for now. My like like you said, you you already kind of took the words out of my mouth. I would love to have the city and every major city actually, you know, um, across this across the continent here to be able to have a First Nations area, you know, that's dedicated to our businesses, to our culture, right? You know, to to our presence, right? You know, can you imagine how beautiful the city would be if you go across one side and there's these beautiful mosques and temples, you know, then you go across the other side over here and you got these great. You know Chinese, you know uh, structures, you know, and these other—I think they call them temples too, yeah. And then you know, down the road there, you got these beautiful teepees as well too, right? You know, and then you come down the further road, then you got these European structures, you know, these because the, uh, I got to admit, some of the churches y'all built—they're beautiful, right? Some of the cathedrals y'all built—they're great, you know. I got to admit, you know, the, the, some of the intricate details—they're gorgeous. So to appreciate the cultures of each other that way, right? You know, and the diversity and the the knowledge that we can each bring. I think once we stop becoming afraid of each other and put away these stigmas and actually just learn about each other and just that, that's simply it. You know, that's why the camp was there, right? You know, to, as a space for people just to come and ask questions. And so, you know, when, when we, we, when we did get people coming by to ask questions, it was a great space for people to, you know, to engage and be able to learn. I think that's a good note to end on. So thanks. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. No, thank you for having me. That's it for the show. Big thanks to Garrett Smith. Uh, an update on the status of the Mokinsis camp. Uh, the TPs have not yet been re-raised across from the courthouse as of early January. Uh, the holidays are a tough time to organize anything. And there's also an election happening right now uh, in the Pecani Nation, which is taking up a lot of people's time. But uh, Garrett tells me that the camp will be re-raised soon, uh, hopefully by the end of the month. In the meantime, you can find both Garrett and the Mokensis camp on Facebook. And check out the Avenue story that I wrote on Garrett. Uh, it's in the December issue of Avenue, or you can find it on my website. The Calgarian is hosted and produced by me, Taylor Lambert. Theme music is Dandelion by Ghostkeeper. If you like this show, please feed and water it by telling your friends, by leaving a review in your podcast app, and by contributing a buck or two a month on Patreon. Visit thecalgarian.ca and find me on Twitter at TS underscore Lambert. Thanks for listening.